Amen. That's why we're here, isn't it? The glory of Jesus Christ. The worthiness of Jesus Christ. And God has seen fit to speak to us in his word, to give us the message of the gospel, to give us this picture of who he is. And it's our privilege this morning, after having spent time singing to God, declaring, extolling his name, to hear from him. And I'm excited to be able to to come alongside you guys and do that. So I'm actually going to get you to stand up with me again as we read the word of God. This morning we are in Philippians chapter 1, Philippians chapter 1, verse 12 to 18. This is the word of the Lord. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. Most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Amen? You can have a seat. In Matthew 13, Jesus tells us, he says, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and then covered up. Then, in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. That's that's how we're meant to respond to Christ. The kingdom of God, the the complete rule and reign of Christ in which every every wrong will be righted is being ushered in by the advancement of the gospel. That kingdom, that gospel, that savior, he is worth everything, everything. It doesn't matter what one might have to give up. It doesn't matter what you have to lose or sell in order to attain it because in the end, It is a treasure that is matchless in its worth. All other things are worthless in comparison to knowing Christ and being a part of that mission. And so we are called not just to hold everything with open hands and give it all to God, but we're called to do that with joy because we know what waits for us. We're called to do it with joy because we know the value of that treasure like this man who finds it. He doesn't go and sell all he has with a sense of grief. He does it with joy. He does it readily. Why? Because he knows the worth of the treasure. Joy is a big theme in the book of Philippians. 
Paul is doing an awful lot of rejoicing in this letter. And it's very clear in our text today that there is a deep joy in his heart, which springs from the fact that, as we read in verse 18, Christ is being proclaimed. Christ is being proclaimed. And in that, Paul says, I rejoice. You know, it was customary in such in a letter such as the one Paul's writing here to Philippi, that he begin with a greeting and a brief explanation of the author's whereabouts or state of being. And so Paul obliges this structure, but, but he does so in a weird way. Instead of offering the details that, that his hearers probably would be asking, right? Hey, Paul, you're in prison. How's prison treating you? How are you doing? What's your condition? What are your needs? Paul answers, You want to know how I am? The gospel is advancing. That's how I am. You want to know how I am? People are hearing about Jesus. And that's great. You see, Paul, for Paul, these aren't two separate questions. His well-being and the progress of the kingdom. The progress of the gospel. This isn't a side hobby for Paul. It's who he is. It's who he is. The kingdom of God is who he is. And and it's in that which he takes a profound, profound joy. Here's the thing. Paul is not supposed to be special in this way. This, This isn't the kind of thing that's meant just for people like Paul. This is the call that Christ gives to everyone who decides to follow him. We are no longer, if you are in Christ, you are no longer a a person of temporary aspirations, making temporary goals. You are a person of eternal goals. We are workers in the harvest. We're no longer fishermen. We're fishers of men. It's an extreme call, people. It's an extreme call. In a way, we are religious extremists, but not in a coercive way, not in a violent way, but, but, we, but simply in that we always prioritize the mission of God in this world over and above everything else, even when it seems crazy to those who look on. This is not simply the radical option to following Jesus. It's the only option to following Jesus. But this is not always a commitment that people are willing to make, is it? You see many examples in the scripture of people who aren't willing to do that. The rich young ruler comes to mind, right? He's not willing. I've, I've obeyed all of these things. What must I do? Jesus says, why don't you start with the first commandment? And he can't do it. He can't give up all that he has. He's got other gods. Sometimes we would rather that there be some sort of a halfway house. I don't want to be that committed, but I want to be some committed, right? Don Carson summarizes this point well when he says this. I would like to buy about $3 worth of the gospel, please. Not too much. Just enough to make me happy. But not so much that I get addicted I don't want so much of the gospel that I learn to really hate covetousness and lust. I certainly don't want so much that I start to love my enemies, cherish self-denial, contemplate missionary service in some alien culture. I want ecstasy, not repentance. I want transcendence, 
not transformation. I would like enough gospel to make my family secure and my children well-behaved, but not so much that I find my ambitions redirected or my giving too greatly enlarged. I would like about $3 worth of the gospel, please. To continue with Carson's metaphor, if you want to buy gospel, you've got to buy it in bulk. If you want the gospel, you get all of the gospel. If you want Christ, you get all of Christ. You get all of the kingdom. And it doesn't just demand a piece of you. It demands all of you. Joy in the gospel, brothers and sisters, is profoundly satisfying and purposeful. But it is also all-consuming. Not just for Jesus. Not just for Paul, not just for missionaries, not just for people who lead churches or small groups or Bible studies, but for all of us. That's, that's what I wish for my life. That's what I wish for all of yours as well. This passage illustrates for us what this kind of gospel joy looks like. It tells us a few things about it, and that's where we're going to turn our attention for the rest of this morning so what are some of the things that we learn about true joy in the gospel? Well, the first thing is this, that it overcomes suffering without overriding it. It overcomes suffering without overriding it. Suffering is something that we all have and will continue to experience. Listen, it's a guaranteed part. It's baked into a fallen world, right? There's no, there's no getting rid of it. And following Jesus doesn't make that risk any better. It makes it worse. Jesus promised that. We're called now not just to suffer like other people do, but also to suffer for his name's sake. Paul, when he writes the letter, he's experiencing that in spades. He's experiencing that. He's imprisoned. As he indicates, he's not imprisoned for anything wrong he's done. He hasn't broken the law. He hasn't, he hasn't become uh, an insurrection within the Roman Empire. Yet he's in chains. And he's in chains, according to verse 13, for Christ. He's in chains for pursuing the kingdom. And he's dealing not only with this imprisonment, but as he's, he's rotting away in his cell, he's dealing with, with a deep betrayal. He mentions, in those, in, in, he mentions people in verse 17, he says, who are trying to afflict him while he's in prison. I want you to know something, see something about these people. They're not just any enemies of Paul. They're not, just, they're not false teachers or wolves in sheep's clothing invading the church, but they don't really belong. According to Paul, they're preaching the real gospel, <laughs> They're preaching the real gospel, and, and they're a part of a group that he calls in verse 14, brothers. There are brothers who are doing this, who are seeking to afflict me in prison. He doesn't exactly explain how they're trying to afflict him, other than a general description that it simply comes out of envy and rivalry. Different people have suggested different theories about what's going on here, but in its most basic form, there are brothers in the church who see Paul's imprisonment as an opportunity to make less of him and his reputation so that they can build their own. Their efforts have obviously gotten back to Paul. Paul knows about them. Paul's heard about them. And I can't imagine at such a low point how that must feel to Paul, how deep that must 
cut for those who call themselves brothers to act in this way. Again, he calls it affliction. He names it. It's affliction. I am afflicted, he says in verse 17. I think we need to stop and think about that for a minute. True joy in the gospel, it doesn't override suffering. It doesn't get rid of it. It doesn't erase it. Life hurts, and, and in a very well-meaning way, sometimes we, we, we try to take the Christian approach of just trying to pretend it doesn't, right? We put these big smiles on our faces, we walk around, we try to convince people that everything's okay, and we try to convince ourselves that everything's okay. Meanwhile, we leave no room for pain. We, we convince ourselves God must have a plan, and so that doesn't really leave room for pain. We don't see how, how true joy and agony can coexist with one another, but they can. And the worst part about this is that oftentimes this can cause us to put up a front to other believers who could otherwise be doing the real work of praying with us and weeping with us and caring for us and encouraging us if we would only be honest. And that's how you end up lonely even when you're surrounded by God's people. Joy in the gospel is not fake, it's not dishonest, it doesn't erase pain and suffering, but, but, it always, always overcomes it. It always overcomes it. It makes us conquerors. Paul can't help but rejoice <laughs> that he sees the gospel making inroads in the things that he's suffering. And one thing we know from the book of Acts is that Paul's kind of an extraordinary prisoner, right? If you remember that story where he and Silas are jailed in, in the city of Philippi, right? To those, basically what happens is they cast a demon out of this slave girl and their owners who are making money off of her don't like that and so they cause a stir and Paul ends up in prison. While they're there, they, they sing hymns to God, they experience this earthquake that opens up the prison doors. The jail keeper is ready to end his life because that's how it would have ended if all these prisoners escaped. And Paul stops him. They all stay in the prison and he has an opportunity to share the gospel with this jail keeper whose life has changed forever, right? What a great story. That's the kind of prisoner Paul is. That's the kind of prisoner Paul is. Now, writing to the church in Philippi from another prison, he gladly reports in verse 13, it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. The imperial guard was the personal protective army of the emperor. At times, they were stationed in different places in the empire, but it's estimated that the guard was around 9,000 men strong. Paul's saying, they all know about Jesus now. They all know about Jesus now. Paul has undoubtedly been spending time, all the time he can while he's locked away, speaking to people about Jesus. Guards, prisoners, it doesn't matter. Anyone who will listen, and it's made a big stir. I highly doubt he's spoken to 9,000 people, but he's saying, what I'm saying, it's creating shockwaves. People know, they're all talking about it. 
Paul is feeling the pain of his freedom having been taken for no good reason. He's feeling the pain of betrayal coming from some of his own brothers in the faith during his absence. But he doesn't allow that pain to keep him in this comatose, inward-looking state where he's unable to see the tremendous opportunity that God has created through it. The gospel is going where it has never gone before, and the joy of that work doesn't override the affliction, but it overcomes it. At the end of the day, what is by far the most precious thing to Paul is the advance of the gospel, that it will continue to march forward to its ultimate end, bringing fully the kingdom of God, and that brings him an abiding peace and joy. I don't know what kind of struggle or toil God is bringing you through right now as an attempt, as you attempt to live a life of gospel faithfulness, gospel priority. But whatever that struggle is, I want you to know the joy of Christ runs deeper. It runs deeper. The roots, they go further. I promise you. You know that there is a purpose You know that there is a meaning behind that suffering, that it's not just gratuitous or worthless or meaningless. You may never know exactly how everything is going to work out together. In fact, most of the time, you won't. But you can rest in the fact that through everything God works in your life, even the hard stuff, He is crafting you. He is shaping you to become more like Him so that you will be made mature and and grow in your ability to help the the gospel advance in this world. Through your own growth and maturity, he will use you if you let him. Sometimes these opportunities will be clear. They'll be right in front of our face. They'll be direct. You'll you'll see how, how this pain or this suffering or this thing led directly to this opportunity like we're seeing with Paul. But sometimes... Sometimes it's a little more indirect, it's a little more delayed, and we can't really see the full picture, but God is always advancing his kingdom. When you're in the middle of the struggle, train yourself to look for those things, even to pray for those things, so that God can come close, he can encourage your heart, and you can feel, along with the affliction, that same abiding peace and joy that Paul is feeling, gospel joy that overcomes suffering. What else does it do? It also encourages boldness. It encourages boldness and dispels fear. Listen to what he says in verse 14. Ready? As most of the brothers, sorry, and most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the gospel without fear. That's what's happening. The church, the the, the people of God in the city where Paul is imprisoned are being emboldened by his imprisonment. Now this seems totally backwards, doesn't it? It seems totally turned around. Since the dawn of human government, authorities have punished, either rightly or wrongly, certain behaviors and actions and one of the primary purpose of these punishments is to act as a deterrent, right? That's what, that's what governmental punishment is for. It's to act as a deterrent so that citizens can look and see, I don't want to do that thing because this is what happens when you do that thing. 
right? I want to make sure I do that thing because this is what happens when I don't do that thing. And we look and they become deterrents for us. We do a lot of what we do every day out of a sense of pure self-preservation, right? And, and, and punishment really taps into that. It really does. Yet here's Paul, who's been imprisoned, who's been betrayed, for, for, for doing nothing but tirelessly devoting himself to the spread of the gospel. And the brothers and the sisters in the city that he's in, they see this imprisonment, they see this punishment, and they go, we want in. We want in on that. Why? Why is this happening? Are they gluttons for punishment? I don't think so. Are they sadists? I don't think so. They don't like pain. They're not seeking some personal glory and martyrdom. That's not what's happening here. None of that. What they see is joy. What they see is the joy of Paul. He's, he's not focused on his pain. They're seeing the joy that persists through the pain. They're seeing what Paul's seeing, that the gospel is being advanced even in this situation through suffering. And they're saying, we want to be a part of that. Isn't there something so inviting about that? We want to be a part of that. They're finally thinking, okay, listen, where, where before they might be afraid, they're now thinking imprisonment. It's not really that world-ending of a thing, right? Look at Paul. God is working in it, and Paul's still filled with peace and joy. I can do that, too. I can do that, too. That deterrent that seemed so big at one point isn't really that big compared to the gospel. And I think this is Paul's goal in writing to the Philippians, too. You know, you know those people... In your life, sometimes you look at them, these, these super Christians, right? These people who seem so gifted and so charismatic or even just crazily optimistic. And, and you see the way that they do things like evangelize, speak about their faith or, or the way they pray or whatever it happens to be. And you love to see it. It's great. But in the back of your mind, all you're thinking is, I'm not like them. I can't, I can't really do that. I know I can't do that. I'm not like that person. They're different. Makes you feel like an imposter sometimes. So when you hear that you're supposed to be doing the same things, you're going, I don't really see how. I don't really see how that's going to work out. Well, here's Paul, who is that kind of a Christian, right? He's the super Christian. He's the apostle. He's the gifted guy. He's the guy who's met Jesus. He's the guy whose life was turned around on the road to Damascus. That's Paul. He's that kind of a Christian, and he's writing to the Philippians who are experiencing their own opponents. They're experiencing their own intimidation. If you read chapter 1, verse 28, Paul references it. Paul references it. But he wants to speak to them about joy amidst suffering. And when he tells them about the encouragement of the brothers in the city that he's in, what he's saying is, he's stopping to say, guys, it's not just me. It's not just me. God is strengthening the hearts of every Christian around me. He's strengthening and boldening the hearts of the church. And the subtext here, what he wants them to get is this, he can strengthen you too. He can strengthen you too. 
He can make you bold too. Where do you need to be made bold this morning? Where in your life do you need to be made bold? What set of circumstances or, or, or what troubling relationships are you experiencing in which you're giving into fear? You're giving into self-preservation. That, that voice that at all costs you make sure to, to avoid suffering. Where in your life do you spend more time fearing about what might happen to you than rejoicing in what God is doing and coming alongside of it? It could be an uncomfortable act of love. It could be a timely, life-giving word that God's given you an opportunity to speak into someone's life. But you're afraid of what the consequences might be. Those consequences may be very small, or very large. We don't minimize any of them, right? We think about Paul's consequences and we start, okay, the stakes are really high. We're talking about imprisonment. We're talking about life and death stuff here. What's my problem? There are no, really, there are no small problems. There are no small intimidations because what's happening in your heart, regardless of, of, of the stakes, it's the same thing. What's happening in your heart is you're giving into fear and self-preservation. Where is that in your life? I know my life is full of it at times. Sometimes it's better, sometimes it's worse, but I run across it all the time. I want to encourage you this morning and tell you that, that God will strengthen you. God will strengthen you and turn your fear into boldness if you would but just ask him. If you would just seek him for it. You know, I don't, love, I don't love saying that God promises this or that a lot. Because a lot of times in our world, people say God promises things that he doesn't actually promise, right? But he promises this. He promises this. He promises that like a good father gives good gifts to his children, he will not hesitate to give the Holy Spirit to those who seek it. He will not hesitate to give you what you need to live a holy life, to fight fear, and to be bold. Throughout history, God has, has even given his church countless role models. The Apostle Paul is one of them. But man, there have been countless stories. You can read biographies, great biographies of Christians in, in, in centuries past, of brothers and sisters who have walked before you through suffering, and ultimately, ultimately, this is even more important, you have a Savior who's walked that path. Jesus walked that path for the sake of the kingdom. Look to them all, not simply as superhuman people of faith that are transcendent or unattainable. These are ordinary people through whom God has worked extraordinary things. Ask him for that and pay attention to what he has done in the past. And I promise you this, he will never deny you. He will never deny you. And then let your life be a catalyst. You know, it works one way. I'm saying look to these people who, who can stir up your heart. But listen, you be that kind of person in someone else's heart too. You be that person in someone else's life who, by looking at your life, they're going to see a persisting joy 
And they're going to be made joyful through it. That's what we want. I mean, imagine, imagine that kind of contagious joy just being unleashed throughout an entire congregation of people. God would do great things, wouldn't he? Gospel joy encourages boldness, not fear. And lastly, gospel joy esteems God's power, not human schemes. Gospel joy esteems God's power, not human schemes. Let's read verse 14 again, and then we'll keep going to the end of the passage. Ready? Most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some, some of these brothers, indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but other, others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. So what Paul does here is he takes this group of Christian brothers who he's saying have been emboldened by his imprisonment to preach the gospel, and he puts them into two categories. First is the one we were just talking about, those who are emboldened by this this genuine goodwill and a love for the gospel. And then there's this second group, these brothers who are straying, whose gospel joy is just a pretense. It's just a face they put on. It's a facade. They preach the true gospel, yeah. But, but they look like their primary motivation isn't actually the spread of the gospel. They're really being motivated by envy and rivalry with Paul. His response is to say that even if, even if envy and rivalry are the motivating factors of some of these brothers, the real Jesus is being shared, is he not? The real gospel is going forward, and that's joyful. I think we need to, to sit with this and think about this response for a second. I want to say a few things about it. Paul isn't saying here that he doesn't care about the motives of a preacher, that he doesn't care about the motives of a Christian who shares the gospel. It's very evident from other places that Paul writes, he cares deeply, deeply about the motivation and the heart and the character of those who speak the word of Christ. He cares deeply about it. All he's saying here is that like suffering, joy in in, in the gospel, joy in, in the advancement of the gospel overcomes even the schemes of men. Just as it overcomes suffering, it overcomes the schemes of men. Ultimately, what Paul is revealing in his statement is that he trusts, he trusts that in what's going on, You can say, Paul, this is crazy. People are doing this. Do you understand what they're saying about you, Paul? Things are unraveling. Things are going to fall apart. And Paul's just simply sitting there trusting in God's power. Trusting that he's going to keep advancing his kingdom. That he's going to, regardless of the sinfulness that might reside in these brothers' lives, that, that he is going to advance the gospel in the way he chooses to advance the gospel. 
You know, if Paul really thought that these envious, rivalrous brothers by their sin actually threatened the work of God that was going on, things would be different, right? He would not sound like this. The work of God is everything to Paul, and to threaten that, remember, is to threaten his whole being, but he realizes all that's being threatened here is my reputation. That's it. That's it. All that's being threatened is my reputation. I mean, I'm sitting here in in prison. My freedom has been taken away. My life might be taken away. If these are are nothing to Paul, his, his reputation certainly can't mean much, can it? And it means nothing in comparison to the gospel. Only Christ's reputation matters to Paul. Only the kingdom. Only the gospel. What we see here is a profound security that the apostle has in the might of God to bring his purposes to pass. He does not esteem human schemes. He's not impressed by them. He's not impressed by what these guys are doing. They don't worry him. He doesn't feel threatened by any of, any of them. They don't threaten anything that's of real value to him, and so his joy persists. You know, this reminds me so much about the example given to us in Christ Jesus. Christ, just like Paul, is someone who's willing to take on the hurt. He's someone who's willing to take on the pain and to do it ultimately for the will of his Father. He's the king who wins by losing, is he not? He's the king who wins by taking up his cross, not marching an army into the city. He didn't care about his freedom. He didn't care about his comfort. He didn't care about his life. He cared about the will of his father. That was his bread. God's power, God's power was what he believed in. He knew that he would be resurrected from the dead. That same power lit the flame of the early church and used Paul and others to spread it throughout the whole whole known world. And that power, ladies and gentlemen, is here today. Same power. That power is here, still working in our churches, in our world, despite what we may see around us, despite what other powers are trying to accomplish. God's purposes are never frustrated. He's never caught off guard. There are never any obstacles that can stand in his way. Our God will not be thwarted. Romans 8, if God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, as it is written, for your sake we are being slaughtered and killed all the day long, for we are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Our God will not be thwarted. And yet, so often, 
we feel threatened. The way we talk, the way we think in the midst of struggle or pain, our circumstances, instead of being like this, they become like this. They become huge to us. And God, instead of being like this, he becomes like this. He becomes so small to us. You know, human beings can do a lot of terrible things to one another, but they can't stand in the way of God. They can't stand in the way of the kingdom. And there's something so freeing, I think, in that for us. You know, you know how much time human beings spend thinking about bad things that have never happened? You know how much time we do? We do that, don't we? We spend so much time thinking about the bad stuff that could happen to us. We get in a situation that seems threatening for whatever reason. We repeatedly ask ourselves, what if? What if? What if this happens? What if I were to lose this thing? What if this were to happen to me or someone I love? We count all the ways that things could end badly and then we devote ourselves to making sure, doing everything we can to put all the right things in place so that we can avoid those outcomes so we don't have to, uh, to feel that suffering or go through that thing. This kind of thinking then drives our actions and our decisions and, and before you know it, life becomes about self-preservation. I don't know if any of you know who Matthew Emmons is. He's, he's an American rifle shooter, a rifleman, who at one point during the prime of his career, he was the best. He was the best. Um, he, he competed in multiple Olympic games, and when he was in his prime, he, he, he was considered one of the most elite shooters in the world. In 2004, in the Athens Games, he had won a gold medal, and then just days later, he was competing in another event. And coming into his final shot... He'd established this sizable, sizable lead. And so all he needed in his last shot, he didn't need to do amazing. He just needed, you know, an average shot, uh, something of eight points or higher. So he takes, his, he, he, he takes his rifle, he looks down his sights, he calms his breathing, he, he gently pulls the trigger, fires. His bullet hit the target in a spot good enough for a score of 8.1, 8.1. If you don't know the end of this story... <laughs> You'll know he didn't win gold. He didn't win gold. He didn't win silver. He didn't even win bronze. He came in eighth place because he shot at the wrong target. He shot at the wrong target. The moment that mattered the most, he shot at the wrong target. He didn't realize it until after. I think sometimes, like Matthew, we can dial in so much of our focus and our energy on, on things like self-preservation. But we dial so much of our focus and our energy on something without realizing we've lost the target. <laughs> We're way off. We're shooting in another lane here. Life isn't about self-preservation. It's about Jesus. It's about the kingdom. And there's something so freeing when we're ready to let go to let go of all of our comforts, to let go of all of our plans, our reputations, or anything else in this life. It's hard work trying to accomplish those things. Self-preservation is really hard work. On the soul, it's hard work. On the mind, it's hard work. Something so freeing about just letting it all go. 
taking away that burden and trusting it to God because we know he's mighty and that he's going to accomplish what's of eternal value despite what people do, despite what might come. I hope this morning that you want more than $3 worth of the gospel. I hope your joy is like that of the man who found that treasure in the field and sold all he had to attain it. Because guess what? Jesus is worth it. He's worth it. I hope your joy is found there. If your joy isn't found there, I don't want to sound judgmental on your life or anything. I know you're not joyful. I know you're not joyful. You don't have an abiding joy because there's only one abiding joy. And it's the gospel of Jesus Christ. He welcomes all. So come, come and partake of it. But I warn you, it will cost you everything. It's not a call to be done with suffering, but to overcome it. It's a call that we accomplish together as we encourage one another in boldness by our examples to one another. It's a call that recognizes the might of God in spite of everything that tries to convince us that he's not mighty. Wherever you lack this abiding joy, just come to Jesus and ask. Come to him and ask. Simply ask. God will never refuse to give an outpouring of his spirit to his children who seek it. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much so much that you've allowed us in on this joy, that you haven't kept us on the outside, but that you've brought us in. Lord Jesus, you are the suffering servant, but you call us to come in with you and experience that same suffering, not just that, but to experience immense joy in the middle of it. We are laborers in your harvest. We are ready to take these things on, God. But please, I pray that whatever is not prepared in our hearts, that you would do that. You have, you have things for us to accomplish, things for us to do in this life, people to, to meet, to talk to about the gospel. You have things that you're challenging us to do in order to help the world see more clearly the glory of Jesus Christ in the gospel. Every one of us has those things. But God, fear stands in the way. Self-preservation stands in the way. And I pray, God, that you would eliminate that in our hearts. Bring us to a knowledge of your power, an experience of your presence and your grace. And then, Jesus, use us. Use us to do as you please. It's a scary prayer to make, God. It's a scary thing to ask. But we pray you would do it. Lord, if there's anyone here who has not made you the joy of their life, if there's anyone here who hasn't been captivated, Holy Spirit, captivate them. Help them see. Help them see what life has only ever been all about. And Jesus, be glorified through it. Be extolled through it. Be lifted up. Not only in our thoughts, in our hearts, but in our actions, in our words. 
win this world to yourself through your church, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.